Some of you may recall a few weeks ago, I made reference to the fact that I recently read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Uh, it's a great story, it really is. There's a reason it's a classic of English literature, or a good reason. Now, those of you who are not familiar with the story, let me give you a quick synopsis. So it is the story of the tumultuous relationship between Elizabeth Bennet, who is the daughter of a country gentleman, and Fitzwilliam Darcy, who is a rich aristocratic landowner. Again, it's a tumultuous relationship that they have that you know, unfolds over the course of, of the chapters in the, in the story. Um, interesting temptation that the reader has as you're going through the book, and perhaps even if you're watching the film, you know what the title is, and you may be wondering, well, I wonder which of the two of them, because you can get a pretty easy read on this. There's two main characters. I wonder which of the two of them is the proud and which of them is the prejudiced. And what you begin to realize is actually, in many respects, it's both. They are both. Now, they accuse one another of specific things. Darcy accuses Elizabeth of being proud. She accuses him of being prejudiced. But the fact is, really, they both are equally proud and prejudice, and the prejudice flows from the pride. What's interesting, actually, is if you take a step back and just think about the plot as a whole, really there's hardly a character in the book, though, that could not be described in that way, as ensnared in pride and prejudice, which then makes you wonder, my goodness, does Jane Austen, is she trying to make a point here? That maybe, maybe this is something that we all have to deal with to some degree or another, that perhaps maybe pride and prejudice is something that we, is an affliction that is besetting every one of us here. And, and the tough part, the difficult part, the well-nigh impossible part is seeing this and then saying it of ourselves. Jesus, in His love for us, knows all too well this affliction and would release us from it. If you have your Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. As I said this earlier, this is the account of the washing of His, his washing of the disciples' feet. Uh, it is absolutely stunning uh, to consider who's doing what to whom and for whom here. Uh, here now the reading of God's Word. John chapter 13, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to Him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than, those, than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray for just a moment. Oh, Lord, would you please, please quiet our noisy hearts, still our busy minds, just for a few minutes, that we might see what was going on and hear what was being said and feel the emotions of the moment and understand the significance of what was happening. There's a lot here. There's a lot here. And if we could just understand a little, if we could just be changed just a little down in the, the roots of our being, down in the heart of our heart, it would make a tremendous difference. And so we humbly ask that you would do that for us. You have done so much. You've done everything. We ask that you would bring it to bear. Bring everything that you have done for us to bear upon us now and change us, we ask. Amen. Let me read to you verse 1 again. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This was a dramatic moment, just jaw-dropping as far as what's transpiring here. As John says, the hour has come. Now, what that means is Jesus recognizes that the moment of the fulfillment of His ministry, why it is that the Father sent Him into the world, the purpose for which He had come was now upon Him. The climax was well nigh at hand. John says that he loved his disciples to the end. Now, that does not mean he loved them as long as he could. That's not what that means. It means he loved them as much as he could, which considering his, can I put it this way, his eternal heart. He, he, he loved them to a degree and to an extent beyond boundaries, beyond our comprehension. He loved them to the end, to the stars, 
and beyond. How? Well, it's, maybe we could get at that by coming at it first negatively and then positively. Think for a moment just with me as to what he doesn't do. John says that Jesus is very well aware of Judas's treachery and this coalition of betrayal mounting up against him. Now, if this was you or I, let's be honest, we would have annihilated Judas in a moment and squash Satan in a flash. Just be done with it. If it was you or me, right? Wouldn't you? Be honest. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he washes the feet of the twelve, including Judas. He gets down as low as he can and washes their feet. I was thinking about that just this morning. If you're one of the twelve, what are you, what's your posture in this moment? You're looking down at Jesus as he is looking up to you. What a moment. In just a few short hours, the postures are going to be reversed because he's going to be hanging, elevated up. And all you can do is look up. But everything that's happening in this moment is actually pointing towards that moment in many, many ways. The setting is a meal. And in the ancient Near East, that is a, a, a context of intimacy and closeness. It, it, it is it, far more than, than even what we understand, uh, the shared experience of a meal today, e though there may be something of that even for us. It, it's Thursday, the day before what we call Good Friday. So it's just on the eve of his betrayal. Uh, Traditionally, the host would provide water that the feet of the guests would be washed. Now, the one who would actually do the washing would be a servant, a servant that ostensibly would be on hand. But in this case, this meal is likely in secret. So a lot of the arrangements have but have not been made. There is no servant on hand to undo the sandals and wash the dirt and the grime from the feet of these travelers. I should add that there's also another part of the tradition and the custom was that the feet would be washed before the meal. No one volunteers. They all know the custom. It's not like, you know, we don't get this and it's only like afterwards, oh, that's what... No, they all know what the custom is. And not a one of them volunteers. Not before the meal, not during the meal, not after the meal, until one stands up. As John tells us, Jesus rose from supper to wash their feet. Finally, someone does it. What a moment. What a moment the one who they all should have been standing in line to wash his feet, stands up to move around the circle to wash theirs. Why? Because, again, as John says, he loved them to the end. 
He loved them to the stars. He loved them absolutely positively as much as He could. In doing so, He is showing them what He's going to do for them on the cross, and He's showing them what they are to do for one another. It's, it's both at the same time. It's a powerful, powerful moment. In washing the disciples' feet, He is on the one hand showing them what He's going to do for them on the cross, and at the same time showing them what they are supposed to be doing from here on out for one another. Now, what do we make of this? Jesus has loved us to the end. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a Christ follower, know this about yourself this morning. Whatever else anybody's ever told you, Christian, Jesus has loved you to the end. He's loved you to the stars. He's loved you as much as He possibly could. Now, what's a response to that? What we're going to see here is a life of humility. It's the only appropriate response, a life of humility before Him and one another. Before Him and, and one another. And you see that in two ways. First, this is if you've got the outline, this is what, where we're going. First, humility as it expresses itself in the confessing of our sin. And secondly, humility as it expresses itself in our serving one another. And that's the only way, the only way that we can ex express, the only way we can respond to such a love from such a Savior. So first, the confessing of our sin. Even here, there's, there's two ways that that shows itself in this text. The first is a absolutely vital, necessary, once for all, confessing of sin. And you see that in verses 5 through 8. Let's read that again. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, the dialogue is interesting to think about what's happening here. Peter is absolutely indignant. He won't have anything to do with this. He can't, his mind, he can't, he can't get his head around this. He has no categories for a Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ dying on a cross. And every time through the Gospels that Jesus speaks of this, Peter, he, he can't. He just can't. He has no categories. He can't. And so any language, any symbolism, anything that points towards that idea, he can't handle that either. So you see, he's, he's just, he can't, he has, no, it just can't register for him. And yet Jesus insists, Jesus absolutely insists on this, the necessity of this once-for-all cleansing that has to happen, that absolutely positively has to happen, which points us towards, in terms of the symbolism, the, the, the once-for-all washing that's going to take place at the cross, and, and the absolute necessity of every one of us to be looking to Jesus and leaning into Him as our one hope, as the Savior 
the one who has come to live and to die in our place. And in that sense, that once-for-all confession that has to come. And Jesus is so firm on this. In essence, he's saying to Peter, Peter, if you don't get this, you don't get me. If you don't understand this, you don't understand a thing. If you're not grappling with this, you're not grappling with anything as to what I've been telling you all along. That's how fundamental this is. That said, that's not the only washing Jesus speaks of here. He speaks of, on the one hand, a once-for-all cleansing, but at the same time, he's also speaking here of ongoing, continual cleansing. Let's pick that up in verses 9 and 10. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, Peter being Peter, he, he and love, God bless him, literally, um, he, he, he swings from one extreme to another. You know, absolutely no, I'll have nothing to do with it, to absolutely yes, let's go. And Jesus takes that opportunity to engage with him. And, and to engage with us and to help us to understand something that we really need to reckon with, and that is, look, as we go through life, as we go through our days, our feet pick up dirt, right? And so there is this need, in the, in the, in the literal sense, for the washing of the filth off of the feet, which is meant to be symbolic for a need for daily cleansing of our daily sin, a need for regular, continual, ongoing confession of our regular, ongoing, continual transgression and sin. And Jesus is speaking equally strongly to this. The Apostle John uh, elsewhere speaks on this point. If you keep your thumb there in uh, 1 John, excuse me, John 13, we're going to 1 John. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, this is just a few books before Revelation, uh, if you're going backwards, you're hitting Revelation, then Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, 1 John 1, starting in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. So what we're talking about here is is really simply this, the gospel applied on a daily basis. The gospel applied on a daily basis. The News Literacy Project is a, a website that is dedicated to a single important purpose, helping people discern fact from fiction in news sources. Such a group uh, does indeed, of course, need much work today, or we need them to do that work much today, giving us fact-checking tools as they uh, compare stories from various news outlets. The idea is to cut through the spin, to cut through all the spin. We need that kind of treatment in our own hearts. 
a cutting through the spin. Jack Miller, years ago, in his book, Repentance, put it this way, we must stop parading around as a shell of a person, living as those that T.S. Eliot called hollow men. Ask the Holy Spirit to make you willing to be searched by God, and in turn, you will realize that you are truly known by Him. Do not expect the process of searching to be always painless and pleasant, no, hardly, but you will begin to have the joy of a clear conscience and a deepening fellowship with Christ as you realize He is unafraid of what He exposes, He's willing to heal, and awaiting your return to Him. As you learn to thirst after Christ and drink of Him, you will find the living waters of the Holy Spirit flowing through you. No longer will you be the shiny appearance of something good, but you will be really living, and from you waters will overflow into others' lives. Jack Miller. Martin Luther, in one of the 95 theses that he nailed upon that Wittenberg door in October of 1517, fundamental of, among them was this one. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when He said, repent, willed that the whole of life of believers should be repentance. He's speaking to the ongoing need, the ongoing need that we have for repentance and confession. The whole life of believers should be repentance. The, The idea is this, sin, our sin, breaks fellowship with God. Our sin breaks fellowship with God. And to deny that, to play that down, to pretend like that's, it's not a problem, is not going to help. In fact, it's just going to make things worse. Think about how that works in your, our interpersonal relationships, right? Some of us come from families where that's like the predominantly dynamic. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. How healthy has that turned out to be? Our sin breaks fellowship with God. The the necessity there is not to deny our sin, but rather to go to Him, to go to Him and to repent of it and to confess it, to confess it. Now, you might be wondering at this point, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that one of the fundamental parts of the gospel message, the good news of the gospel message was that... We are absolutely, because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, that we are absolutely, positively safe and secure in God's sight, and there's nothing to be added to it, and nothing can be taken away from it. So how in the world can you sit there and say that sin can somehow get in the way? I'm so glad you asked. Because that you're, you're right, but you're not hearing the full thing. On the one hand, yes, absolutely, the cross settled the problem of justice settled the matter of, our, of punishment, punishment for our sin. That's absolutely right. There's none to be, nothing left to be paid. That's only half the good news, friend. The other half is it brought you into relationship with God. You understand? The debt has been paid, and it brought you into relationship with God. And so, having been brought into relationship, it's not that our sin, our transgression, our iniquities severs that bond, but it affects it. 
It's, it's not that it cuts us off from him, but it distances us from him. Just as, think with me, just as with a rebellious child and a loving parent, it's a very similar dynamic there. The parent hasn't moved. The parent's not going anywhere. It's the child and the rebellion that have moved away. The Lord is calling us to continual examination, to apply the gospel, to embrace the gospel again and again and again and again and know how free and full uh, this good news is. To take David's counsel to heart in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, the, the last two verses there. 139 verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Again, Jesus has loved us to the very end. The only appropriate response is a life of humility, and part of that means ongoing continual confession of our sin. That's the first point. The second is... And we see this again in John 13, not just the confessing of our sin, but our living as servants. Our living as servants. And, and the, we really have to press on it because responding to the gospel is not just something that we ponder, but it's a life that we imitate. It's not just something that we think about. It's something that actually needs to be done, something that needs to, to, to be done. And that begins with knowing who He is knowing who Jesus is. And you see this in verses 12 through 15. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So Jesus is pressing them on the titles that they refer to him with. Okay? He's pressing them on that, saying, okay, okay, you call me Lord. Now, at the minimum, the absolute minimum, that was a term of respect. It would come to be much more. You call me teacher, the implication being that I have wisdom and knowledge that you do not have. Okay? Let's run with that. If I then... As your Lord and your teacher, live and move and work and engage with you in these ways, and you have seen what it is that I've done for you, and now hear what it is that I say to you. You must then, if I am indeed your Lord and teacher, as you say I am, you must then accept my direction and follow my example, if indeed I am who, you, who even you say I am, your Lord and teacher. So it begins with knowing who He is, knowing who He is. It also goes further, knowing who we are. Jesus presses this just a little harder, and we see this in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Okay. He refers to them as servants. Some of you may have footnotes, and you can see at the bottom it says bond servants. What that means is slave. 
the property of, owned by, mastered by, controlled by another. Messengers, you have been sent. Yes, you have a voice. Yes, you have a message, but only, only because of the one who is sending you and backing you. You have standing, but only because of the one who stands behind you. So if indeed you are a slave and if indeed you are a messenger, look, there is no task that is beneath that of a slave to carry out on behalf of their master. There is no assignment that a messenger in this context can, can uh, refute or refuse that the one who sends him can push back upon. Those are non sequiturs as a slave and a, and a messenger. We, we need to know not only who he is, but who we are as we stand before him, as he sends us. But then he goes even further when you th- really think about this, not just knowing who he is but, and knowing who we are, but knowing whose we are. Knowing whose we are. Being clear on our, on our identity and our, our mission. And, and at this point, it's, it's really helpful to think through what Jesus said. Now, this is what, something we've been drilling down in over the last several weeks, John 13, 34, and 35. So Jesus says in, in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Okay, how has He loved us? Let's think through. What did Jesus know of Himself that then impelled what He did? What does He know of Himself? What is He sure and certain of that has everything to do with what it was that He then carried out and took upon Himself? Well, actually, we don't have to guess. The text tells us. Go back and look in verses 3 and 4. Jesus is absolutely clear on His origin, His authority, and His destiny, on His identity and His mission. Verses 3 and 4, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, does what? Rose from supper. It's a direct connection. It's a direct connection. Knowing what he knew, he did what he did. Now, he's calling us to love and to serve each other as he has loved and served us. So what is it that we need to know and can know? What is it we need to be sure and certain of that we can be sure and certain of? Whose we are. Whose we are. The assurance we have of His love, I mean, goodness, having loved us to the end, grounded in our mission and what it is that He would have us to be and to do. We are then impelled and compelled to love and to serve one another. Again, this is just the gospel applied and lived out on a daily basis. It's just the gospel applied and lived out on a daily basis. Let me t- go back to the last point and, and the temptation to spin. Okay, Every one of us does this. We're like career politicians. 
every one of us in, our, in the depths of our own heart. We are. Every one of us. Th- think about how much of our lives and our energy is spent in trying to elevate ourselves in the face of one another, to make ourselves look better in terms of what we, think, what, what we know and what we can do and what we've accomplished, us trying to establish bragging rights over here and over here and over here and establish territory over here and over here and here, how we try and elevate ourselves in front of one another, how we try and secure a reputation with the people around us, try to establish our worth and our value. It's all spin. It's just spin. And Jesus would have us to be done with that, to be free from that, to be over that. We don't have to spin. There's no need for spin. Our security, the certainty we have in our standing before Him is beyond our comprehension. What on earth are we doing with our spinning? Oh, goodness, if we would, to the degree we would grapple that, again, it would allow us and free us and embolden us and impel us to love and to serve each other. Let's go to verse 17, where Jesus says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Friends, Christianity, following Christ, the life of a disciple, is not a spectator sport. What would it mean? What would it mean for you and I to love and to serve one another in the way that Jesus has loved and served us, in the way that indeed He is calling us, commanding us to love and to serve each other? Let's just go with the word picture of the washing of the feet and and break that down for just a minute, okay? Literally speaking, how do you wash another person's feet? What are the actions you have to take, the steps involved? Okay, you have to slow down. You can't wash people's feet on the run. You have to slow down. You have to move towards them. You have to bow low. You have to release what's in your hands. Let go of what you're holding so tightly to. It's the only way this works. That's the only way this this works. So, okay, that's great images. Let's press a little harder. What service, as I'm, you know, we're rolling out with that that imagery. now, Now, okay, what service, act of service, would you find well nigh impossible to grant towards another person? That may be exactly where you need to go. What act of service can you not even imagine 
giving towards another person. What right do you insist upon holding on to that perhaps, maybe, Jesus is saying you need to let go? My fellow Americans. Let's think about not just the what, but now let's think about the who. Not just what do you find it well nigh impossible to think about doing, but who now do you think about well nigh impossible doing it towards? Let's think about feet. Some feet stink, right? Because of where they've been. And so we don't want anything to do with touching those feet, right? Because of where they've been. We don't want, those, we don't want to touch those feet. Some feet don't just stink. Some feet hurt. Hurt us. Because of where they've trampled because of where they've stepped, perhaps even leaving tracks upon our very hearts. Do you see how where this goes? Jesus certainly shows that in the washing of the, not eleven, the twelve. There's a twelfth one. Oh, that we would listen to his words, not dismiss them, not play them down. Oh, that we would see what it is that he has done for us and not think how worthy we are of it. Jesus has loved us to the very end. The only response in that is, is, is a life of humility, and, and in this case, not just a life of con- continual confession, but service one towards another. The foot washing, again, is meant to be a picture of what Jesus has, was, doing for, was going to do for His disciples and what He was telling them they needed to do for one another. It's a picture of what He's saying to us, let me wash your feet and go forth and do that for each other. I don't want to wrap, I don't want to stop until we just say one more thing regarding the obstacles to this. And it's very simple in terms of just saying it, it's what's much harder is dealing with it. The obstacle is pride. Right? If we're talking about the only right response is a life of humility, well, what's the obstacle? Pride. It's what stands in the way. It's what causes the, our, our ongoing failure to confess and our spin and our ongoing unwillingness to go low and serve because we're proud. Every one of us, every one of us. Why we have to be washed. But the frightening thing is, the sobering thing is, is that the spiritual vitality cannot coexist with pride. Pride chokes spiritual flourishing. 
Pride chokes spiritual flourishing. I was reminded of that dynamic just this past week in reading an article um, about Mount Vesuvius and Pompeii, the great explosion that took place in the, the latter part of the first century. Some archaeologists, another incredible find there in, in, in the area. And for those of you who you just just not just that volcano in and of itself, but this is the case with most any disaster along along these lines. But you know, it, it's it wasn't just the lava, it, it wasn't just the ash, it wasn't just the flying debris, it wasn't just the heat. As horrific as all of that was, it was also just just the volcanic fumes. Now that's not as dramatic to be killed by volcanic fumes, but that's still just as deadly. And the thing is, volcanic fumes are, are denser than air. So what happens is it drops down to the ground, so you're done. You're just done. And it chokes the life out of you. Just like pride. Just like pride ch- chokes the spiritual life out of us, making it impossible for us to confess, making it impossible for us to serve one another, which therein means all the more oh, goodness, how we need to go to Jesus. How we need to go to Jesus, that our pride would be crushed and that He would inflame and re-inflame and ignite and reignite even a modest amount of desire to serve each other. Oh, how desperately we need Him to remember, to be reminded of who He is and who we are and whose we are, whose we are, that we would be impelled, freed, freed, friends, to live and to love and to serve this way. He has loved us to the end. He's loved you. He's loved you to the very end. The only response is a life of humility. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for the washing. Jesus, you are the servant, the suffering servant. Come to wash. You are our Lord, our teacher, calling us to go forth and wash one another's feet. We are servants of the servant. We are certain, or should be, certain and secure in our standing before you, forgiven and free, nothing to prove, no more spin. May our anger turn to joy. May our exhaustion become quiet in stillness. May our defensiveness give way to transparency and honesty. May our stinginess and selfishness give way to openness and service. May it be so with us. We pray in your name. Amen.